tonight I wanted to talk about a topic outlined in some of the early discourses by the Buddha, Buddha called uh, Papancha. Papancha, it's an, I, I think the word's an onomatopoeia. It represents what it sounds like. And Papancha, what it means is it's a mental proliferation or a spreading out of the mind. It's really the types and the habits of thinking that create our mental anguish. So papancha has this sense, this kind of cacophony to it, where it's like this spreading out effect. Where we get a lot of mental obsession and a lot of our inner critic. So in some sense, this isn't really, this doesn't mean if we have a lot of thinking like racing thoughts... I would just call that racing thoughts or a lot of thinking happening. But papancha is really that type of thinking. It's the categories or the habits of thinking that we find ourselves in obsession around. I looked up some of the etymology for the word proliferation. The word proliferation means to grow by rapid production of new parts. So we see, we know in our minds sometimes, like when I have fear or when I have a worry or when I have anticipation or expectation in the mind, it's like once fear and worry, for example, enter the mind, one thought can lead to two, can lead to four, can lead to six. There's this spreading out effect of that mental habit. And the word proliferation uh, gains its roots in Latin. And the word at its root really means bearing offspring. So the mind has this tendency to have babies, right? And then you're sitting in a room full of screaming kids all of a sudden looking around, right? And having to deal with the distress or the anguish of just Sometimes it's like, almost feels like my mind can be against me a little bit. And we have, unfortunately, and even in the secular mindfulness world, taking mindfulness into the scientific world and taking mindfulness out of the context of the Dharma, kind of waged a war against our minds. I know for me, when I first started coming here, my real hope was that I was going to be able to get rid of my mind. It's like, oh, well, I'll just meditate and I'll be able to, you know, sit like the Buddha with this big peaceful affect and that's kind of what will happen. If we're not careful, and I like to talk about this often because if we're not careful, if I don't remind myself of this trap almost of waging a war against the mind or that I'm going to have some type of like mental lobotomy or getting rid of the anguish, the obsession, the distraction, the, you know, then we're really setting ourselves up quite a bit. So 
so instead what we're doing is we're trying, we're hoping to start to familiarize ourselves with the patterns and the conditioning of our minds. We're starting to look at the mind in order to be able to relate to it, to transform our relationship to it. So it's always going to be here and it's always going to be kicking and screaming in that regard and helping me out quite a bit. I think it was Mark Twain said, the worst moments in my life never came true, right? It does a lot of that stuff. The impending doom mentality and the trying to fight with the endless uncertainty that it means to actually be alive. All of the predictions and the... You know, but then we start to be able to see that and to care for that, and we really want to lead with the heart. And this is where we bring in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, we bring back in this uh, sense of an ethical foundation to practice of kindness, of friendliness. Really actively cultivating that attitude or that capacity, that quality of our mind, bringing that forward into the practice. May I be at ease with my mind right now. May I learn to care for and empathize with my mind. It's doing its best to try to protect me and to try to predict, you know, all of the, what's around every corner and can I, can I see through the obsession itself and into the real concern that we have born into the nervous system to keep us alive. It's like, oh, what a transformation, that relationship of instead of hating my thoughts and hating my anxiety and hating my depression and being able to care for it. So we start in mindfulness. This is really the core path that the Buddha taught. It's what the Buddha's teaching was really unique for, is, is he introduced this practice of sati, or developing, cultivating mindfulness. And in order to do that, we're really developing kind of two things at the same time. And they're mutually inclusive, so you can't really separate them out. We're developing, traditionally we would call this concentration and investigation. So one of the places that we want to start to practice with is being able to, in a sense, train our attention. Realizing that wherever our attention is, it really creates and kicks up quite a story, quite a compelling story. And so being able to find the attention and be able to place the attention, for example, like we did tonight in the simple process of breathing, Through practice, we get a little bit better at being able to find our attention and place our attention in the body, embodied awareness. And when we're able to do that, this is called samatha, or, uh, it, it develops a quality of tranquility or a little bit of some ease. Breathing in, in the instruction site, breathing in, calming the mind with the breath. Because one of the things we know, and we know this through neuroscience too, is when your attention's scattered, 
right? Between all of the many, many, many busy things that we have in our lives and it's jumping around, it has no ground. So it creates it creates the feeling of instability. It creates the feeling of being scattered. It creates, in some sense, stress. And so when we, when we practice mindfulness, we're able to start to collect our attention a little bit and be able to have a little more, I find it almost a daring word to say, a little more agency but a little more ability to ground. And this stabilizes, you know, this stabilizes the nervous system. And then what we are doing at the same time is then we're starting to be able to observe and familiarize ourselves with where the attention wanders, kind of what it's up to. Kind of like I use this reference often, this metaphor often. It's like watching a movie on the big screen. You go into the movie theater and you feel with the film, right? You feel the suspense. You feel the drama. Hopefully, if they did a good job, and the mind has the same compelling nature. We kind of just, without mindfulness, we just kind of follow it around. And we're very affected by it. And so we're not trying to get rid of our affect or how we're affected by the mind, but we're trying to be able to recognize that that's what's going on. So it's kind of like remembering, oh, I'm just sitting in a movie theater right now. And looking at one of uh, the teachers on a retreat I assisted recently said she works in film production. She said she watches movies a lot of times looking at how they made the movie. And so do we do that with our mind? Do we have this investigative quality or do we kind of find ourselves washed around by the story? So look at how it's made. Wow, that's wild. My mind went straight from uh, noticing this black Honda Civic driving down the road to remembering my ex-girlfriend who had a black Honda Civic and remembering how that all ended and how I'm still single at 35 and how I'll never be, you know, and it's like, whoa, that happened in like two seconds. (laughs) So being really careful and being really, uh, you know, practicing, observing that, watching that. So collecting the attention, we, we gain more of that capacity and know where the attention is. And then we're able to ask ourselves the questions, what, what's happening here? So it's helpful to look at some of these habits of thinking, some of these patterns. And they don't just affect the mind. We talk about thinking like it's up here, but in the Eastern context, the heart and the mind are interconnected. It's this word chitta. So it's really when we talk about the mind, we're also talking about our emotional affect, and we're really even talking about how the whole nervous system comes packaged together, this interconnected mind, heart, body The first category of papancha, there are three categories. The first category is uh, craving and clinging. These are patterns of habits that we often find ourselves in. 
tanha and upadana are the Pali Sanskrit words. And tanha, craving, what it really means is it means thirst. And so there's a distinction in the Buddhist teaching between desire, just a sense of I have some aspirations and some short and long-term goals and I need to prepare for my job interview tomorrow. Like I need to... Uh, prepare and have some aspirations, some short-term goals, but craving or this thirst is a demanding the satisfaction of the desire. So this kind of endless sense of anticipating what's going to happen next, right? Where the uh, sense of just maybe healthy and skillful planning or healthy and skillful desire turns into a need, a demanding the satisfaction of it now. And there are three types of craving that we talk about. The first is kamatanha, which means craving for sensual desire. And this is the sense of just sitting around and finding ourselves really wanting to fill our sensory experience with pleasure a lot of the time. One of the unfortunate results of having a nervous system that has reward systems in play to help us eat the donut instead of the broccoli, right? And so we're sitting around a lot of the time really kind of looking, looking, where's the next hit of pleasure I can experience? And this almost endless sense that it's out here, and if I can get it in here, you know, then I'll have some, my thirst will be satiated. Kamatanha, and then there's Bawatanha, which means craving to become. And these aren't mutually exclusive, they're all linked together too. And the craving to become is this sense that we can see oftentimes it manifests in our culture too. One of the easiest ways to see this is our relationship to our roles and who we are. Who am I, who am I going to be next? And we find ourselves sometimes at periods of transition where we lose these identities. You know, that we, we even have words like, or we have phrases like the empty nest syndrome, right? When all of the children leave the house and the role as the mother changes. You know, or when you have a job or a career and you get laid off, or when you know, we, we want to become. You know, well, who am I going to be now? And do you see that? I mean, this is, it's almost like an endless cycle of just, if I can just become the right things, if I can get the girlfriend, if I can get the job, if I can get to the next one, once I save the money and I budget right or I get the house or the thing, it's like then, but it, do you see that it never is then, right? It never, I mean, it works a little bit. <laughs> but then we got to become something else. And the Buddha was really pointing towards this and he's not saying, oh, it's your fault or you're bad or good for doing that. He's saying, no, that just happens. And we want to see, we want to start to be aware of how much refuge we take in becoming something. And he, this is one of the dead ends he talks about. The Buddha's path or the Dharma is that of the, the middle path between two dead ends. And one of the dead ends is this craving to become. 
you know, I also say this, and I'll go out on a limb and say this because I think that it's a big cause of stress and anxiety in our culture is also this endless discussion around what's going to happen when we die. And I think there's some refuge, some uh, healthy sense of faith, or there's a healthy sense of ease that we can find in some of our beliefs around these things. But the Buddha was really saying, you know, we want to start to lit. He said, no, like right now, here you are, right now. Now our happiness is dependent upon our actions, how I, you know, that there's results from the thinking, from how I speak and how I act right now. And so really encouraging us to look, look to slow this down a little bit. And then there's vibhava tanha, which means craving to not become. In the most extreme forms, this is where we can get the frozen state of depression, the sense of uh, feeling really, really not, really disheartened by the whole human experience itself, really bitter in the sense of not wanting to exist. Almost a sense of nihilism, of that there's no point, there's no purpose. Well, then what's the point? What's the purpose? I should just... This can manifest as suicide, as chronic depression. It's not a... You know, it's not something that we actively intend for ourselves. It's just a pattern. It's a, it's a quality. It's a, something to be aware of, to notice. Self-hatred. Even addiction to some degree is a craving to not become. Really not wanting to deal with this. And so all of our avoidance strategies a lot of, in a lot of ways. So this is all tanha, or this kind of craving. And then there's also clinging, or upadana, which is this reaching out, right? We reach out to become, or we reach out for the ice cream, <laughs> or we reach out to uh, the avoidance strategy. And then there's the holding on. In um, some parts of India, they have a trap for some of the monkeys there. And what they'll do is they'll bury a clay pot in the ground that's just big enough. You know, it's like putting a bracelet on. It's really just big enough for your hand to fit like this. And so you reach into the hole in the ground and there's some food in there or something. And what happens is the monkey will grab the food and won't let it go. And so some of the trapper or the person will walk up to get the monkey and the monkey's still... Uh, standing there with his hand or her hand on the food. And so that, you know, we see this in ourselves. This is one of the tendencies is just to kind of hold on to dear, for dear life to really dig our nails into some of these experiences that are all impermanent. Everything, everything 
is subject to change. The second category of papancha are some of these habits that create mental anguish is our uh, tendency to towards self-obsession. I think in one of the easiest ways we can understand that this is the same story in the myth of Narcissus where he's looking into the water and seeing the image of himself and is so infatuated with himself that he falls into the the pond and drowns, right? We can sometimes even have this quality of drowning in our self-view, our self-image, or who I am, how I am. And again, I don't think that it's necessarily intentional, but it's just one of these habits that we find ourselves in. Uh, The Buddha has a discourse on 16 questions that arise out of self. And I think these are kind of interesting because this was written 2,500 years ago. And some of these questions, although I don't ask them actively, but the flavor of the questions play out in my mind constantly. And there are, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? Having been what? What shall I be in the future? Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being come from? Where is it bound? And so if we're not careful, in some extent we can find ourselves in this almost endless list of the versions of ourselves... How am I? How am I doing? Comparing self, right? I see this one a lot. It's almost amazing to me to watch. I can walk into a room and my mind automatically can sometimes categorize myself as where I fit in the hierarchy of the people I'm hanging out with. No, I'm cooler than that person. Damn, I really want that person to like me, but I don't think I have a chance. When we do this, we're we're pack animals, right? So we kind of look for our role in things. Our career, our gender, our political stance, the football teams we like, geographic location, right? All of our ways of identifying with. And so the Buddha wasn't saying, well, don't have a self. Okay, you should have just no self at all, ever. He's saying that look at allowing the self to be more creative and fluid. That these roles and that how we identify ourselves and, you know, that we want to start to look at the bias of the mind, how I can walk into a room and place myself in the hierarchy and start to be like, whoa, that's trippy. Right, can I go against that inclination? Can I start to really question that? Can I not be so identified around my political views? This is a great time to talk about that. And be instead more curious and interested. And not indifferent from 
disengage. It's almost that craving for non-existence. I bet many of us are feeling that way or on the political spectrum right now. I don't even want to participate. Right? Not indifferent from, but creatively engaged with. Oh, wow. How is this? And how is my identity? And can that be more fluid? Can that be something that I don't have to hold to? Self is also where we create positioning. This is where you get oppressive systems. This is where you get self and other. This is where you get bullies in school and subgroups and cool groups, in crowds and out crowds, and where you get all of these groupings. And of course, in a lot of the later manifestations of the Buddhist teaching and Mahayana Buddhism and even Vajrayana Buddhism, the intention becomes to look more at how this sense of separate from the other, the sense of separateness, is actually a big delusion. Because think about it, if all of us, if all of us had access to compassion and to kindness, if all of us were actively cultivating these qualities... You know, that this impacts us all, that your happiness is actually my own. And sometimes we can have this poverty mentality that if you're doing well or if you're uh, having some ease and well-being in your life, that it's taken away from mine. I mean, do we see, I mean, I see this play out in our world all the time. It's my rights and your rights and their rights and foreigners and people of this country it's like who who's who's what we made all of this shit up you know and so but on the relative level we function within these systems and so we have to be not indifferent towards them but we have to be very aware of how they play out be like oh whoa that actually exists not deny that it exists and say oh we're all one people we're all equal because we're actually not there are many structures. I mean, if, if I can separate myself from people in subgroups, just think of what civilizations can do over time. Isolate, self and other. I mean, history shows this time and time again. <coughs> battling over religious territory, battling over lines that we draw on the sand, over money that we made up. I mean, it's actually pretty trippy to think about it. And so being able to just kind of acknowledge that self is a big source of macro-level suffering, global suffering. And the last category of papancha is suffering around views and opinions which we've already talked quite a bit about but this is this kind of belief-centric, just knowing that we all have views. I have views, you have views. Everyone has their lens in which they see the world. A lot of this is conditioned from our past experience, our upbringing and our previous experience with family members and people growing up, and that we see the world and we relate to the world from our view. We all have views. 
It's almost like the glasses or the lens in which we're seeing things through. And just to notice that this view is very limited. Mindfulness really helps to tap into this kind of big mind, this sense of, uh, in, in dialectical behavioral therapy, they call it the wise mind, which I actually kind of like, this sense that my perception is very limited to my own experience. And so can I be curious and interested in this bias a little bit and being like, uh, how can I be with more of a beginner's approach to what's happening right now? And so where can we dwell? I mean, we have all of this conditioning. This sounds like bad news to some extent. Buddhism can be kind of a bummer in this way sometimes. You know, Carl Jung says that we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So we have to be accountable and responsible to the ways we get hung up in order to really be free of them. And so if I walk around, and he says imagining figures of light, just kind of going around, not really attuned to these dynamics that are playing out moment to moment, and these habits that I myself find myself stuck in all day long, with no awareness of that, I'm really run around by them. The spreading out of the mental obsession really can take root. And the Buddha was uh, used a lot of agrarian symbology, so what he really encouraged is to water, to plant seeds and to water those seeds and to allow some other things to take root. And so what are some of the seeds we water? And this is what we call, and if you've been coming for a while, I won't really go into it extensively, these Brahma Viharas or this sense of, we call these heart practices sometimes. <coughs> Actively cultivating and practicing kindness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity, this balanced understanding that my response to what's happening is what I'm really what my happiness is really dependent upon. What am I bringing forward? Brahma Vihara means divine dwelling. So where can we actually land? Where can we ground ourselves? And so we could talk about that for a long time, but I think I'll stop there. <laughs>